where all my children are the light Born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right My people are warriors, all we know is to fight Pray, they see God and everything I write here Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a joy to be here in this room. Um, I am thrilled to be having uh, in concert with the oldest civil rights organization in the country, the NAACP, which does the work for all of us, even when we don't know it. Let's give it a hand for the NAACP. Give a big hand. Um, I am so excited. I have not been this excited all year, folks, okay? Let me tell you why. Um, this week, literally this week, I spent some time with someone who's like a little, little brother to me, Eugene Brown. Where's Eugene? Um, we were trying to figure out a, a good town hall to help the NAACP plan. And I said, let me tell you, there are some folks that I really, really want to sit down with. And two of them have become good sister friends of mine. And so I bothered, excuse the language, Mr. Chairman, the hell out of them to make this conversation happen. And right before I came up on the stage, they reminded me of that. They've lost a little sleep because I was serious about making this happen. And so I want to take this opportunity to introduce to some of you, but just to reintroduce to most of you who we call in Congress, the squad. Yes, the squad. And so first up, we have Rashida Tlaib, the Congresswoman from the great state of Michigan, representing the 13th District. Yes. Detroit in the building. Thank you, Rashida. Thank you. Um, I think she's sitting right here. Is that fine? We're taking that seat. Yes. Great. Next up, we have... Uh, my good friend from the great state of Minnesota representing the 5th District, that is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. I must be doing this out of order, but that's okay. We're going to get there. And also another good friend of mine. She is so powerful when she speaks. You'll hear more from her in just a moment. The Congresswoman from the great state of Massachusetts, 7th District, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. And last but certainly not least, uh, many of you all have seen her in a Netflix special. You watch her from near and afar. The Congresswoman from the great state of New York, the 14th District, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Thank you so much. Okay, ladies, we can sit. All right. Hi, ladies. Hi. Hello. Thank you all so much for being here. So what I want to do first is fix the mics. <laughs> Please. Okay. So I want to start with rapid fire in part because we just had this little bed zone. Y'all are still awake out there? Y'all still excited? Okay. So I want to start with rapid fire. I'm going to go to each of you. You have to, I'm not going to tell you which one. I'm going to go to each of you real quick. You can't think about it. No pontificating. First answer that comes to mind. You ready? Go. Rashida, last song you listened to? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, last time I listened to a song, I don't know what it was. Oh, God. It okay, first song comes to mind. Go. Well, I can't, no. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. what. I wasn't listening to any music lately. I haven't been listening to music. I haven't. I really? Honest, no. But you know what? I have like the See, Spotify. See, I knew I'm you were like, going to do this. I don't know if you have. A lot of people think I'm a millennial, but I grew up, I'm 43. 
So I listen to a lot of 80s music, like Smooth Criminal, like a okay. little bit. Yeah, I love all of the old okay. school stuff. Smooth. You don't, you don't got to be a millennial to listen to those. Oh, I know. <laughs> but I always feel like people think like I know that. No, I'm, I'm still a very much an 80s, 90s girl. Okay, here we go. Y'all ready? Ayana, first kiss, how were you? Oh, my God. <gasps> we are not doing this. I did it. 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 Uh, I'm completely fine with that because, <laughs> you know, uh, all right. I was eighth, gra- eighth grade. Okay. Eighth grade. His name was Paul. Oh, oh Ayana, don't do it to Paul. He had freckles. <laughs> he also dumped me. Oh. Don't feel bad. They all come into those DMs now. But I'm <laughs> to the movement and my black diamond shout out to Conan Harris alright now we love Conan alright now this is a tough group to do rapid fire with but let me see okay Ilhan what show would you binge watch oh um right now or yep that's fine oh okay uh blacklist blacklist okay alright alright I don't know I, how I, li- I like things that are just too much because my life's too much so <laughs> Okay. Helps me cope. Alexandria, running shoes or stilettos? Stilettos. <laughs> stilettos. Like stiletto. I okay. should put my running shoes on more, though. <laughs> okay, last one is going to be a wild card. I'm going back to Rashida because she cheated. Uber or Lyft? Uber or Lyft? Lyft. All right, Lyft. All right, we're getting into it. We're getting into it. We're getting into it. Okay, so thank you all so much. I wanted to just start lightening the load a little bit. These mics are still sketchy, but we're moving right along right along here. Um, I just left before I came up here to talk with you all a roundtable on the importance of uh, the black woman vote going into 2020. And I'm bringing this up because um, by conventional wisdom, none of you all would be here if we listen to what the pundits say. I know I'm a pundit, but just roll with me on this. If we listen to what the pundits say, if we listen to what all the commentators say, um, you wouldn't be here, right? You're not supposed to be here. And so I want you all to just for a moment, talk to folks who are aspiring to run for office who aren't supposed to be there, who aren't supposed to apply for that job, or who think their votes don't matter or they don't have political power because all of you all along your journey have experienced a little bit of doubt at some point, but you kept going. So just talk for a minute about that, about our power and how we must harness it, not just going into 2020, but period. And I'll, I'll start with you, Rashid. You know, I think a lot of people um, know this. When you think about running for office, there's, you know, people say, go talk to this person, go talk to the party, go talk to these kind of what we call establishments or uh, some of these systems. Gatekeepers. Are, yeah, say systems in place. But I remember when I decided to run Congress specifically, or even state house, um, you know, I was specifically told it's not your turn. Um, and I said, well, I didn't know there was a line or something like, uh, no, really, I didn't know there was a line. No one could really tell me why. Um, but one of the things that I think is really critically important is like more people like us, people in this audience, some of us regular people don't running for office. And I think that is some of them, I think reasons that it's so broken 
now. Majority of my colleagues are millionaires. You know, they're in an income bracket that's so completely disconnected with the American people. And I think as a person that was running especially in you know Wayne County in Michigan and Detroit one of the things that I kept hearing door to door is you are you going to be one of those democrats that sells out or are you going to you know are you not going to push back and so when I decided to do this, I said, I'm going to take corporate PAC money. I'm going to do this door to door. I'm going to talk to people on the human level, like what is going on uh, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and really try to develop that in, through human contact. So when people say to you, you got to go here, you got to get these endorsements, I can tell you, I didn't get those kind of endorsements. Uh, when I was running for Congress, I did endorsements that you see you know, when people run for office. Um, but I got people that believed um, in, in the message that everyone, no one deserves this kind of corporate assault on working families, this feeling of oppression and, and just, you know, othering that continues to happen with policy all the time. And so I can always tell you, be your authentic self. We talked about this, be unapologetically yourself. People to this day, uh, you know, I'm never going to be your polished politician. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm not going to dress the a certain way. I'm not going to, you know, all of those things. That doesn't matter. People are hungry for just realness. And when you want to run, you put yourself out there. Don't get swallowed up in how it was done before. Do it your way. And people love that. They'll embrace you for it. What about you, Alexandria? Yeah, no. You bring up an excellent point. And I think, one. first of all, we're coming into an election year. And people love to talk about, you know, we hear it in the not just not just pundits, but consultants, et cetera, discussing about black women's votes. And I think we need to talk about black women's agenda more um, because these often don't translate the priority that we see in elections doesn't translate enough into the legislation and our and our the priorities that we have as an agenda in Congress. And so I think we need to just take that power that we have, all of us as an electorate and demand the conversations to be centered as important as any other conversation that we have. But that being said, I think that there are a lot of institutions in, in my backyard. There was no way that the, our local established Democratic Party was going to endorse me. It just wasn't going to happen. And um, a lot of the way these institutions work is through a carrot and a stick, is making you believe that you have a chance. And what you, what I think we have to do is, is to find our way, find our path, and to accept it. it. We don't have to ask for anyone's permission. We don't need to jump through any hoops. You need to build your coalition yourself. Don't rely on anybody else's. Don't knock on anyone's door. We got to build our own house. And that's what I think our path is. Like, just, we don't have to ask. We have so many tools right now that money used to be the gatekeeper for. You know, digital tools have completely blown open the door on organizing. So you don't need to rely on knowing this one guy who has a connection to a building. You can go into that building yourself. And it's going to take a lot of work. But I think the commonality that we have is a commitment to grassroots organizing and being with people shoulder to shoulder. And I think it's that return that is going to get us 
the results that we need, the people that we need in office, and it's what translates that vote into that agenda. Um, because we don't, it's something that I don't think we gets discussed enough, what gets centered uh, once, once that election day has passed. So I think it's, you know, we don't have to ask anybody permission for anything anymore. You know, all of this and this democracy belongs to us. It belongs to us. Right. I, I also just want to say that I think in this conversation of civic engagement, we often define it in two ways. You can run for office and you should vote. And I really want us to not forget in our excitement to diversify the candidates running, to amplify the voices of our daily experiences and struggles, to harness our ideas and innovation, that everyone needs to run. I'm not one of those people pushing that. Not everybody's built for this. What I do want to say is that we have to be just as committed to building the pipeline of the people behind the people that are at the elbow of the people running. I am sitting here today, one, because my mother did not raise me to ask permission to lead. Two, may she rest in power. Two, because our campaign challenged conventional wisdom and assumptions about how to run and win elections. So people will characterize and frame us as disruptive. But if you were in the tech world, you would consider that disruption innovation, which is all we did in our campaigns is we innovated, right? How to run and win elections. Now, if I didn't have an intersectional team, if I didn't have a multicultural, you know, queer, every gender identity expression, um, multi-generational cohort of people committed to actualizing our shared values, we would have made different strategic decisions in our campaign, and I would not be sitting here. So because conventional wisdom says to make this about the most engaged voters, to make assumptions about who desires and deserves a seat at the table of democracy, to engage in a politic of transaction, where before you ask someone about their life, you ask them for your vote. That is a problem. So we are collectively ushering in a different paradigm, and I'll, I'll end here by saying two things quickly. I, again, I never want to give short shrift to the magic of any woman on this stage. I wouldn't dare do that. But when we allow pundits to characterize the victories of 2018 and define them as a wave or as a magic, it does a disservice to our work, to our, to our strategy, just like how they do with Venus and Serena. They make it all about the power and not about the strategy. So I'm not going to discredit my magic, but I know less about black girl magic and more about black woman work. And we, and we put it in. And the last thing I want to say about strategy is that we went behind the wall. MCI Norfolk, I just went back to see those, those brothers. Shout out to the AACC. 250 incarcerated black men endorsed our campaign from behind the wall and organized a minimum of three family members on the outside to go to the polls. That's what is possible when you choose to be disruptive.
or innovative. Or innovative. <laughs> Ilhan, speaking of innovation, yeah. you grew the, uh, the the voter base in your election by 37 percent from the in, the from your the preceding your, your predecessor. Talk about why that's important when we talk about growing not just the electorate, but also moving an agenda to Alexandria's point. Yeah, I mean, for for us, you know, we it was really important to to kind of amplify right what Ayana was talking about. It wasn't it wasn't enough for there to just be transactional relationships being built in community. They needed to be transformative. And so, what we were interested in was um, making sure that when we were in community engaging people, that we weren't just inviting you know a, a Somali person to go talk to the Somali community, that we were inviting a Somali person who understood that particular Somali community, who was of that Somali community, right? Because the diff there are different kind of conversations you get to have. Like, I might be a, a Somali refugee, but I've been in this country for 23 years. There is a different kind of a conversation that someone can have with a mother who's been in this country six years, who is struggling raising her three children, who just became a citizen who's excited about the opportunity to exercise her voice. And so we have to be um, innovative, but really be excited about having fluency in the day-to-day -day lives of the people we are trying, we are seeking to be a voice for. And in our district, you know, I, I'd had uh, a 10-week primary. Um, my predecessor, God bless his soul, uh, decided to run for uh, Attorney General, Congressman, former Congressman Keith Allison, uh, and gave us only 10 weeks to organize for a primary. And everybody who has been waiting, who understood there was supposed to be a line, was running for this seat. And I was the only person, the youngest person, the one person who didn't come with the network, who wasn't mentored, who wasn't prepared um, to be in Congress, who thought to herself, sure, I've only been in this country 20 years, but I could do this. Um, and. <laughs> And it was important for us to run a different kind of campaign that would be exhausting because we ended up <clears throat> reaching out to 300,000 people, right? I was on the doors eight hours a day. We were having, um, you know, meet, meet and greet at seven in the morning for people who were rushing to work or, you know, before they dropped their children off to school. We were having conversations as late as 9 p.m. for people who would want it to come out after they put their kids to bed. And people would say, Ilhan, you're losing your voice. I got bronchitis because, you know, like after I did my eight hours outside, I would be doing eight hours inside because we also had to get delegates and win an endorsement in a convention and all of this. And so I got bronchitis. I barely could speak. And people would say, like, you can't even talk. You've got all of these volunteers. Why do you need to be at every single door? Why do you need to have this many conversations with people. And for me, it was important because I knew that for my grandfather, who came to this country being excited about participating in democracy, it wasn't enough 
for me to tell him who to vote for, he needed to have a conversation and see the work that they were promising to do before he can trust that he could give them their vote. And so if my grandfather, who didn't speak English, barely understood our systems, could only trust with his own eyes and his own ears, I knew that every single person deserved that. And as my predecessor would say, every vote counts, every vote matters. I wanted to make sure that people understood that in their heart and knew that I would carry that out. And Ilhan, just a quick follow-up on this. You've talked about the numbers of uh, the participation numbers in the African immigrant community in, in Minnesota. What's the, tell me that number again, it's high. It's, it's, it's a lot. Um, so for, for new immigrants, mainly the Somalis, we're about 90%. Um, we vote at about 90%. 90% voter participation. 90% voter participation. But I want to caveat that, right? Because yeah, people yeah. hear that and they think like somebody like me has gotten elected because the Somalis no, voted for me. That's not my point at right? all. It's because us hope because we need to figure out how we're going to engage black folks at the same rate. We right. share some of the same DNA, y'all. So we can turn out at 90%, but what is the pathway to get there? Yeah, I right? mean, and the pathway was that because yeah. there is the easy assumption, right? That you see me as a Somali person, you must cast your ballot. That is the way to engage us, yeah. right? That's why they think you need the black friend, you need the Latino friend. Like, who is who is this community going to listen to? What does the pastor say? But that's not the, the number one motivating factor for people. You got to treat them as equal. You got Got to have a conversation with them. And so for the Somali community, as much as I love them and they love me, they were not excited about voting for a first to be a female. And so I got about 5% of their vote, both when I ran for the state house and on my way to Congress. Because unfortunately, both of those times, there was a Somali male in my primary race, right? Alongside everyone else who was running. And so to our community, whether they are Latinos, whether they are the LGBTQ um, community, whether it is, you know, you're talking to a Bangladeshi community, it doesn't matter, right? You have to make sure that you are engaging them, understanding where their interest is and devoting proper resources. Yeah. So I, although I knew deep down in my heart, right, that, they had a long way to go before they could accept someone like me could be their history-making person. Yeah. I knew that every single day was important for them to be at the table and for people to go to their doors talking to them about why they needed to come out vote, even though I knew they weren't going to vote for me. Yeah. Um, because the power that is within our vote is too powerful to waste. Wow. Rashida, th yes, thank you so much. That is, I never knew the second part of Ilhan's story. And for me, it's like, man, this, this great voter participation number from her community, but then to have that same voter participation number work against her efforts. Talk about what it's like when you're running from, you ran from a majority black district in Detroit. And I, grew up in the, I always like to tell people when Mike is not working again, son, 
Thanks, okay. sis. Um, we always got each other's back. Uh, I, I always tell people, you know, I was born and raised in Detroit, the most beautiful blackest city in the country. And I'll tell you, every corner is a reminder of the civil rights movement. I mean, we birthed movements. And one of the things that we, when Elhan, Sister Elhan was talking about just like the, the big, huge turnout, we expected about 60,000 people to come out and vote um, in the last election, non-presidential election. We had a 40% increase. And people thought, oh, well, it must be, you know, the Muslim community. It must be this community. And when I looked, it was majority African-American woman uh, over age of 50 years old that came out in droves and made history and, 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 and uh, again, electing the first Muslim woman, electing uh, a Palestinian woman. But the thing about our community is we birth movements. And and one of the things for me is that I did always have to outwork it uh, because sometimes those identifiers are the things that, that maybe shut down conversations. But then I just went door to door. You have no idea. I mean, people know me as the girl with the post-it notes. And I went door to door and got connected with people all the time. We did 55,000 doors. And people remember me as, oh my God, you're the one that took on that billionaire that tried to build build a bridge without a permit. Oh, you're the one who took on the Koch brothers. You know, so I did it through action where people can see that I didn't, I wasn't going to push back and say, okay, well, you know, when development comes in, it's okay. And we're going to create these jobs. I said, no, 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 no. I learned from my black teachers in Detroit public schools, that is a form of oppression and gentrification that moves out my residence. I'm not going to look away. And so for a very long time, even watching my mother, who still has this heavy accent, she would be whispering and it would be the mother down the street because they're mothers in Detroit, like all down the street. That one mother, I remember her saying to my mom, speak up. They need to hear you. And so for me, I was raised so rooted in the community and part of who I am. But at the same time, I will always surround myself with, you know, black folks that have understand the trauma of being black in America. Like, I'm not going to pretend that that's, I, I have to surround myself with people that lens, but I can tell you that is the one thing that really drives me to make sure I never sell out that I always at the forefront, try to push back against any form. To me, it's called oppression. I don't care. This corporate assault, moving tax dollars away from schools, uh, into development that doesn't, doesn't, it just goes to friend and family packages for friends. And so it's not jobs for my people. Six 60% of Detroiters work outside of the city of Detroit. 70% that work in the city of Detroit do not live in the city of Detroit. And this is a 85, 90% black city. We've lost more black home ownership than any other state in Michigan. I mean, in the state in the country. And so this is real. And they needed somebody that wasn't going to take corporate dollars, that wasn't going to, you know, back down, you know, when folks came forward. And yeah, I have come very, very forcefully um, and and very powerfully to bring forward their voices as much as I can elevate their voices. But that's the one thing that I got to tell you. It's my social studies teacher from Southwestern High School, Prospectors. She's sitting there working the polls. She has never worked the polls all day. And she's sitting there like, you're going to vote for Rashida. So it is part of the, it's because that's the one thing that is important, that you're so connected to your community. So yes, I am so proud that I represent a 60% black district um, because they always have my back. Like even when the president says, no, don't you dare let him shut you up. And yes, impeach him. And they'll continue the rest of the census. The best thing, I love him. One mother, Angela. The NAACP passed an impeachment resolution. Yes, they did. In Detroit, in Detroit, in Detroit. They did it in Detroit. 
And but you know what? I'll leave you with this. It's beautiful because even when I make little hiccups and things like that, one of my seasoned residents, one of the mothers, she comes up to me and she's like, "Listen, dear, I don't, I don't like that. I don't." use those words. I don't say those things. Oh, you know what I said. But one of the things, one of the things I loved is she goes, you know, but when you said it, I felt more liberated. And I thought to myself, thank you. Thank you. That is powerful because even for her, she's not going to sign. She, she felt more liberated. I said, I'm glad, I'm glad you got some sort of felt of freedom from me speaking truth to power. And so I'll continue to do that. But that's the one thing is people can't take away from the fact that I grew up in that city. It is part of who I am. It's part of everything that I decide to do, I look back and I'll ask those mothers, what do you think? She goes, you go tell him what we, you better tell him exactly what I just told you. I love it. And I I love that they always got my back. So it's been wonderful. I love that. Can I I add something? I think that's that's the piece that drives people insane, right? Because Rashida represents a district that is majority black. I represent a district that's majority white. And people are always like, how could we defeat them? Who do we recruit in their districts? What could we do? And it's like, we are of our districts. It's not about the race. Like, these are people we understand who raised us, who invested in us, and who we have been investing in. And so this whole notion that you must get somebody else who is of our, like, origins or you know who's black or Somali or whatever that can just like automatically replace us and can become your puppet it's not something that the people are interested in people want to have somebody that understands their struggle knows what kind of fight they're interested in and when they send you to the ring that you are going to be ready to throw it down and that's I think a really good transition to you Alexandria because Um, I think part of uh, what is so fascinating about your story is um, I know this is a nonprofit. I'm not a nonprofit. Um, Some of the Republicans who are terrified of y'all, by the way, I'm gonna go back to that. Terrified of y'all have decided that you're just a waitress and just a bartender. College degree be damned. They don't care. Um, Don't I don't know if they even know that you worked for Senator Ted Kennedy um, like you have a background in this and you didn't, y'all just didn't pop up, right? Like you didn't just pop up. You've been doing organizing work. So speak to that just a little bit for folks that like Ayana said, may not run for office, may not even be, may not, maybe they're not supposed to run for office, but yeah, they no. still have a very important role to play. I think it, it goes, it speaks so much to Ayana's point about it's not just magic, it's work. And years and years of work has gone into being able to build a coalition that can make history overturn a multi-decade political machine. Like, that didn't just happen. But of course, as usual, the work and the organizing work of women of color have been erased. And so when it happens, we don't see it. And then when it makes change, it's like, this is magic. It's not magic. It's work, just like Ayana said. And so, um, bef- before I entered Congress, yes, I was, I was a waitress and I was a bartender. I was working to help, um, I was working multiple jobs to help my family prevent foreclosure. But I also was a community organizer. I was an educational director with the National Hispanic Institute, educating thousands of youth and leadership skills nationwide. I had interned for Senator Ted Kennedy. I had worked with uh, various social enterprises and how we actually build equitable um, educational outcomes in our community. And then everyone's surprised 
when we finally show up and know what we're talking about on day one. Um, but I think it's, it's it, to me, at the same point, I don't shy away from my background working in restaurants because I think out of everything that I've done, working in restaurants has really prepared me most for this job because nothing will give you the ferocity of advocacy like having that kind of experience. No one can tell me about things like sexual harassment. No one can tell me things like working for tips on a, a wage that is less than the minimum wage. No one can tell me about taking the subway at three o'clock in the morning home from a night shift. No one else has those experiences on the other side of the aisle. Very few people have those experiences. And by the way, when they do like John Boehner, they're lauded for it. They're like, that's a guy I could have a beer with. But with me, it's like, Shh. So, <laughs> what is it like? What is it like? Yeah, is that, <laughs> yeah. So I I'm mean, totally gonna do that. To and you. it's because they're scared. Because sometimes I think that the Republican Party recognizes our power more than we do sometimes. Because they Say would that. not One be more time. tweet that. Yeah, not in from the NAACP account, but tweet that everybody else. Because there is a reason we are on Fox News twenty four seven. Why every pundit, while they're sending mailers with our face on it, because they know how powerful we are more than sometimes our own. Frankly, I think. Did our you own party know does. to this point? Did you know the North Carolina special election? Um, who's the what's his name? Dan Bishop from last night in his acceptance speech. Y'all got a shout out. Did you know that? Oh, no, I didn't. He said, he said, and this is an indictment on the liberal agenda with AOC and the squad. <laughs> it, you got a shout out last night, sis. Last. Oh, well, that's night. good to know. Just like that. I can play is, it. I is, have it on my phone. I have it, receipts. I was ready. Is that why he won by a smaller percentage than Trump did in his district? Listen, listen, listen. I don't, I don't even. So let's talk about that for a second. So. We have some tremendous voting rights issues. There is an impending threat on our democracy. And I think it really starts with the election security measures that have been passed in the House that Mitch McConnell has not taken up yet. This is a voting rights issue in NAACP, not partisan. Um, given the fact that um, these bills have been passed, and again, going back to our, our collective political power, all these faces in this room, what can folks do to ensure that these election security measures are passing the Senate, being considered in the Senate and passing. Is there another measure that needs to be taken up in the House from you all's vantage point? Ayana Ilhan said. <laughs> um, first, I just want to say in this Democratic majority Congress, we have been doing our job and our work has been directly informed by the people. And so not only did we come in with an agenda that was informed by the people that we met and built in coalition with, when that person says that his victory is an indictment against the squad, first of all, the squad is all of y'all. That's right. It's an indictment against the American people because that's what we're representative of. We are not some insurgent cohort of a gang which, by the way, those implied characterizations are racially not even coded. They're just racist. We are lawmakers. We are thought leaders. 
We are activist leaders. We are agitators. We are coalition builders. And what we are doing is honoring the long history, the role that women have played in our democracy, that women of color have played, often rendered a historical footnote. But we have been shaking the table. We have been seeking justice. We have been telling the truth. We have been the preservers of democracy. So I need you all to know this, that when we are in the sight line of the occupant of this White House or anyone else, the reason why we stand firm and strong is not just because we're strong, it's because we know that everyday people are experiencing great oppression and injustices every day. We are grateful for the solidarity and the attention that we get. But at the highest point of our receiving that solidarity was the same day that Eric Garner's family was denied justice by the DOJ. So we are focused on that. And I just want to just underscore that the squad is not about four lawmakers. The squad is anyone doing the work of building a more equitable and just world. That's it. And so because you are members of the squad, what we need you to do, someone was baiting me on Twitter the other day, and they said, why are you always preaching to the choir? And I said, because I need the choir to sing. Right. I loved it. I need the choir to sing by marching, to sing by protesting, to sing by raising your voice, to sing by voting. Sing, choir. And so what can you do? You need to do, even though you are fatigued, and drowning from a fire hose of insult and assault every day. I just want to give everybody a hand clap for being bold and brave enough to show up in the world every day exactly as you are. Because right now, right now, that is a victory. That is a victory. What do you do when your very existence is the resistance? And so the fact that you continue to show up authentically as you, I'm going to claim that victory. So I need you to keep doing that. And then we need you to organize. We need you to mobilize. We need you to agitate. Do you think anything in Congress happens because of the extraordinary conviction and wisdom of lawmakers? No. It happens for the courage of everyday people who hold us accountable, who stand in the gap. We still have an ACA because people laid their bodies on the ground and demanded that people see the humanity and the dignity in them. I convened under the leadership of Chairman Cummings and with the support of my colleagues, the first congressional hearing on childhood trauma. That is because of what we heard in community about trauma today in oversight and reform, a hearing that I called for and my colleagues supported on medical deferment. The battles that we need to win, whether it's election security, whether it's immigration reform, whether it's gun violence prevention, whether it's true health care and not just health insurance. We learned in our first uh, full committee hearing on financial services, shout out to our chairwoman, Maxine Waters, that we could end homelessness. 
at the equivalency of the cost of one military aircraft carrier. $13 billion. If we prioritize housing first, we could end homelessness for the equivalency of the cost of one military aircraft carrier. Let me just Did everybody say, just hear that? That's what I just I was just about to say. What I think is astounding, astonishing, is you said that in the room got silent. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because the, this is packed like this because you all have come in with a bold agenda, with big ideas that some call radical, crazy, and everything in between. But part of the reason for that is because somewhere along the line, someone told us that it was more political, politically expedient to accept, accept incrementalism. And you all have rejected that. Right. So the fact that the room got silent, like, oh, we can't get rid of one military carrier aircraft. Like, yes, we can. You know, but like, it's still quiet. You know what I'm saying? So what what do we do to break the condition that you all? I don't know what y'all did to do that. I don't know if you were born this way. Maybe it's Maybelline. Now they owe me advertising dollars. But like, what did you Fancy. do? <laughs> yes. But I don't I didn't have a maybe. Maybe it's Fenty. OK. But my point is, like, what did you all what what quality do you all possess that makes you summarily reject incrementalism, that makes you summarily reject that my Green New Deal, New Green Deal, New Green, Green New Deal is not too big. You're just scared. Like, what do y'all like? What is that? Tell I, me what that DNA is. I like. think a, is that? a big part of it, at least, you know, because so much of what we do is rooted in community is that when people talk about what's realistic and not realistic, back home, what the present condition is right now is unrealistic. The income, our, our wages not increasing in real terms in 30 years as your rent goes up every single year, that's what's unrealistic. You literally just don't, the math doesn't work out at the end of the month. So we have to change it. But the present condition is unrealistic. And I think for me, painting that picture, always talking about we cannot go on like this. This condition right now has an expiration date. It does. We cannot go on like this. We will not continue being a democracy so long as we start rigging votes. We will not continue being a, a financial, a, a stable economy so long as people start, you know, getting pushed out of their apartments and becoming home. Right now, New York City has the highest rate of homelessness since the Great Depression. And at the same time, there are for every homeless person, person experiencing homelessness in New York City, there are several empty apartments in Manhattan because people are using them as bank accounts to launder their money. That is not realistic. That present condition is not realistic. And when it comes to climate change, what is not realistic is not responding to the crisis on the uh, on the not responding with a solution on the scale of the crisis because what's not realistic is Miami not existing in a few years that's not realistic so we need to be realistic about the problem which we have not been we have not been realistic about the the rate of poverty in the United States. Majority of Americans, large plurality of Americans, not having a thousand dollars in savings—that's not realistic. 
people not being able to afford insulin and dying, that's not realistic. That's not the reality we can tolerate. And we will receive whatever we choose to accept, and we cannot accept this present moment. Yeah, and, and know, that's and what should move absolutely. us to act. And you know, Angela, one of the things that I, I feel like, you know, doing nothing isn't an option anymore. You know, there there's a lack of sense of urgency. I mean, as soon as I got here, there was this lack of sense of urgency. What are we gonna do? And 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 when you say when I, I'm not joking, Chairwoman Maxine Waters had a slide of the carrier showing them the carrier like it just takes one to end homelessness. I remember this. But you got to show them. So one of the things that we did is I repealed the GOP tax plan, just completely repealed it, and then showed the American people, let's do the boost act. What's that? I said, you want to find money? We find money for the shareholders and we found money for corporations and the 2%. Let me show you. Boost Act would give people a three to six thousand dollar tax credit. You could be a, uh, on disability income, a caretaker, a student, and it would uplift forty five percent of Americans out of poverty. That's close to half of our neighbors that are right now four hundred dollars away from an emergency and, and getting into the cycle of poverty. So the Boost Act is wonderful. In my district, I love it. When I walk, I have the third poorest congressional district in the country. Chronic poverty. I mean, when I pass by, they're like, Rashida, the boost act, because the three to $6,000, that can change lives immediately. And when people ask me where I got the money from, I said, I got it from the shareholders that Donald Trump gave a payout for. We repealed it and we gave, we do the boost act. So we're showing you exactly where the money is when they tell you can't pay for it. We're showing you. And the lack of urgency is hard for me. I'm the eldest of 14 children. I've been taking care of people all my life. I see the impact every day. I know really probably for you being in, like being on the front line as a service worker and all these things. For me, it wasn't my law degree. It wasn't my education. It's honestly being that big sister that they called. You know how it is. So there is that connectivity, but there is this lack of urgency. I feel like people don't understand because these are years I can't get back for my residents. I can't get big th these years for our kids. This is it. So there, this all comes from that, you know, me being on the outside for so long and kind of looking in and saying, why haven't we passed something to get people insulin? When that woman came to our committee, Ayanna saw me, I mean, I cried. I just could not believe she lost her six-year-old daughter. She was working. She was doing everything she was supposed to do. Lost her six-year-old daughter because she couldn't afford insulin. In this country where we subsidize, we pay 80, 90% of the cost to produce the drugs and they turn around and literally scam us, patent it and go out and charge us $2,800 or more. It is unbelievable. And for us, I don't know, when we see that kind of injustice, I mean, I can sometimes feel so much better if I look at Ayana, she's like, and I just like, okay, so I'm not crazy, right? Because that's crazy. That is nuts that we haven't done anything about it. It's true. I look right at her and I'm like, is this, it may, is this nuts? Like, why haven't we done anything about it? So yeah, I'm going to introduce the Boost Act. I'm going to show you exactly where they got the money from because I'm going to show you what the GOP got the money for it. And so we got to be able to do these bold, radical ideas, but they're, they're bold and they're not. They're people driven. They put people first. That's what it is. If that's bold and radical, then I take it. Give it to me. So, so yeah. I, I will say, I think the, the, it's not that we're born with anything really, is that we don't really have the fear squared that exists in Congress and with the American people. 
So when I say fear squares, like there's, there's two types of fears. There's fear that's driving the politicians from being afraid of asking real questions. And there's fear that's driving the American people in voting for these people who continue to tell them that we're going to invest in defense in the defense budget because we're protecting you. We're going to invest in um, the criminal, the, you know, the the prison system because we're protecting you. Uh, and people don't get to have an opportunity to say, listen, you have, right, all of these military bases around the world in countries we don't even need, right? That is 100 times literally more than any of the countries we're supposed to be afraid of. While I have to live with subconditions in housing, in water infrastructure, in road infrastructure, in transportation infrastructure, how can I get you to care about my base, fulfilling my basic needs before you fulfill other things? Yesterday, when we had our forum at the uh, Howard Theater, BT, we were talking BT special about, airs on Sunday. We were talking about my student debt cancellation. There was a young woman in the audience. This is a student who probably had student debt herself, and she said, "I don't support you canceling out student debt because our country is already financially struggling." I am not sure, and Wall Street is like struggling. I'm not sure how you're going to tax Wall Street to pay to alleviate the burden and the stress that I have in achieving an education that is in the public interest of every single American. So she is basically advocating against her own interest and has bought into the fact that we are supposed to be responsible for the health and the well-being of Wall Street. And that this particular crisis that we have in our budget isn't due to misprioritization of our money. When you do the budget in your home, you are first setting money aside to pay for your rent or your mortgage because you don't want to be homeless. The second money you set aside is to feed yourself. And probably the third money you set aside is to figuring out some mode of transportation so that you can get your children and yourself to where you need to go. So when we are setting our budget, those things should be the first priorities for the country. Whether you have an alarm system should come after that. If we are not able to feed the American people, we're not able to properly house the American people. We have people like in Minnesota who are afraid because they already suffered what the consequences are of having um, an infrastructure that's not cared for with the collapse that we had of Highway 35, they're literally afraid. My daughter, every single day, would be like, Mom, read a prayer every time we cross a bridge or we're on the highway, right? This is 
fear that most of us are living with because there is this investment in our communities while we are paying all kind of money to have a military base in Japan, in Germany, in France, in countries that they themselves are not investing in their own protection. And we already have the kind of technological advances that we need to know what is coming at us. And we don't need to be present in those countries. So just, oh. So we just need to ask the real questions. We ask real questions. We're not afraid of them. And we're going to tackle all of the problems. I, I know we need to, to wrap. So, but just two, two things. Um, so one, thank you. I know we're not ending, but I don't know when we're going to end. So I just want to say this. Thank you to you and the NAACP. Um, very proud that Boston will be the host community of the National Convention. Um, so we'll see you all there. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Boston was the first chartered branch of the NAACP. So it's a very proud history there. And I also want to, in advance, ask the NAACP for their continued partnership regarding the census, the census, the census. When we talk about inequities and disparities that exist in all of our districts, they did not just happen in the ether. They were created by policy. Each of us is legislating to disrupt um, that horrible legacy and to improve these outcomes. But the district I represent, and I know this is true for all of ours, the Massachusetts 7th is one of the most under-resourced because it's one of the most under-counted. In the eyes of the federal government, if you are not counted, you don't count. So if there is one action item that I could give you, I need all of you to make sure that you're counted and the people that count in your lives to you are also counted so that you can, get the, so that you can be seen so that you can be heard, and so that you can get the federal investment that you deserve. This money is critical to funding public education, to community development block grants for public housing, for language access, for health care. So the census is so critical. And the last point on that I want to make is that I'm so grateful to be serving on the Oversight and Reform Committee under the leadership of Chairman Cummings, where one of the things we work to maintain is the integrity of the census. And one of the things that I will continue to fight is for our incarcerated men and women to no longer be counted according to where they are being warehoused. We, I mean, just work with me. Our private our for-profit prisons, our correctional facilities are more often than not in suburban communities and the bodies of folks are being counted and those communities are getting federal dollars allocated to them. Meanwhile, the very home communities that folks came from that were set up to fail, right? A country that was built by us, but not for us. Ecosystems created by discriminatory policies that don't support thriving. Folks need to be counted according to the home communities they are from and not where they are being warehoused. And the last thing I want to say about mass incarceration is thank my colleagues for their support of the bill that I've introduced to abolish the death penalty. Thank you all so much. We have time for just a couple of audience questions. Now, let me be really clear. Huh? Oh, let me be really clear. These are audience questions. If it's not a question, if it's going too long, I will cut you off. 
That's not made for TV. That's me in real life. Ask my friends. So um, I don't know if there is a mic, but someone from the NAACP will hold the mic. You will not hold the mic. You do not need to put your hand on the mic. You just need to speak into the mic and you're going to speak your question. <laughs> I will come with you to your town hall. Might lose you some votes, though. Okay, so you will ask your question. Your question will be brief because we need to wrap. Yes. Um, <clears throat> sorry, uh, I'm getting over a cold. Hi. My name is Anthony White. I'm originally from the Midwest, Chicago, but I'm currently in Baltimore, so I represent Maryland. Um, my question is, you guys were talking about, like, the community block grants. That's important, but about the criminal justice system and how the privatized prisons and their... Most of these people are from cities, you know, and most of them are black and brown faced people. You know, we you know our prisons are holding over two point some million people in our local and state prisons. My question is how and it relates to transportation when it comes to that. So since we know that these um, prisoners are housed or slaves essentially are housed because they considered criminals are housed in suburbia or rural communities. What type of bill could you guys introduce transportation bill to get those people from cities to those jobs because if they're privatized we know they're not going to be moving those um prisons anytime soon but what ideas do you guys have or is there any legislation that will be able to get say like regional planning to get transportation based off of those numbers of those um okay prisoners hold on to hold on hold i know on. that's a lot hold on i'm not even gonna do my girls like that i don't know what in the world is happening. So, so no, no, because now I went to it was what legislation can you use? Now you said what can we do? And it was a bus and jail, and I am not sure. So if you can just in about five words okay. ask the question because it went four now directions. Can we, now can we get transportation funding okay. for people in cities uh -huh. who know there's no jobs there for them to get out there to those jobs? Oh, you want the, them to work at the prisons? My point is they're not going away tomorrow. So at this point, because the funding's coming. Okay, I, okay not a debate. Do you want okay. the people to be transported to work at the jail? Is that the question? No? Okay, uh, Rashida has it. Rashida, I think, Rashida's your life. Yeah, line. no. She's so, answering. But, but Congresswoman Presley, I think, addressed this. In the, uh, she's going to be working with Chairman Cummings about the fact that right now, those incarcerated in those communities, those dollars are going to those communities where they're not from. And so you're saying you want to make sure that money goes to the communities where they're from so it could be used for transportation and all those services, correct? I think. Wow. Yes. Con Girl, you've been through some town hall. Yeah. What you? I, 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 I yeah. So I, I just, uh, what I hear is that. That's, that's how you are the oldest of 14. <laughs> that's how. So I just want you to know, it, it sounds like to me that Congresswoman Presley and Chairman Cummings are very much aware of this and something that they're going to champion, correct? I'm sorry, I don't want to speak for you. But. Girl, you killed that. That's good. That's true. But I also want to say that first and foremost, and we've talked about this on our committee, that the definition of infrastructure needs to be expanded to include housing. We cannot talk. And I want to add sidewalks. Okay. Because we do need an investment in multimodal infrastructure and broadband. broadband multimodal infrastructure, which supports and promotes biking, walkability, buses. But housing is our biggest infrastructure, and that is not included in the definition. And we can't talk about transportation and not talk about housing. All this is linked. I also want to say the federal funding formula is antiquated for transportation. 
And that is something I'm, we're actually, I'm working with Representative Chewy Garcia out of Illinois um, to highlight the intersectionality between transit and climate and to um, challenge and change the federal funding formula when it comes to transportation because it is antiquated and it is contributing to these inequities and disparities. Transportation is simply a social justice issue. If we have folks working at a living wage, if we give folks um, uh, rent relief or get them out in a path pathway to home ownership, uh, promote the livability of a city, but folks can't navigate it, it doesn't matter. So thank you. Thank you. That is amazing. Okay, can we have a question over here? Where's that mic? Okay, right here. Hello. Oh sorry. Yeah, just, just, just speak into it. Um <laughs> my question for you all is how do you keep on moving one day to the next and continuing to fight so hard and work so hard? when it feels like who you fundamentally are is at risk. I am in a similar situation and I, I can tell you there are days I just don't want to open my eyes because I know I'm going to go into a battlefield just because I'm an orthopedic surgeon and I dared to dream that a black woman could do that. So how do you keep it together and just keep pushing forward in spite of all of it? Powerful. I think, um, you know, all, all of us have our spiritual core and it is, it, it is, first of all, it's important to recognize that it is an injustice that that is the reality for so many of us. So, it, and that is important because like Rashida was saying is that you don't want to go in and say, am I crazy? Because that happens so often. We're in an environment and you're feeling this resistance and you're just like, am I crazy? Am I crazy? So the first step is no, you are not crazy. You are walking into a hostile environment and keeping that at the top of your mind so that you can center yourself and not attach your personal worth to how you are being treated. Know that that is not a reflection of your worth or a reflection of who you are. It is a projection of where they are and That's who right. they're coming from. Right. So I pray for the people who have those attitudes because they are carrying a weight and an anger and an ugliness within them. That is their burden, but it is not yours. And so that is first and foremost. Secondly, I always think it's important. I think each one of us has this in our own way is to center your spiritual self. However you do that, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through reading, whether it's through contemplation, meditation, you, we all have spirits and our spirits hurt when these things happen. So you need to find whatever that is for you to center yourself because it is the, it, it, you know, it, it is not that we are special in any way. It is that I think we feel connected to a greater force and to a greater humanity. And so every single day, that's not an occasional practice, every day, we need to connect and root ourselves for that because you are doing battle, but know that your battle is purposeful because you are the front line and you are paving a path right. for many That's women right. and for many That's people right. to follow you afterwards. So know 
know that you are a trailblazer. You know, I think about that image of Ruby Bridges all the time. I just, I just do. I just think about it all the time. I thought about it when we went to Clint, when we went to Clint and we went to the, the detention facility in Texas. And I mean, the hatred, there were all of these people that came out protesting at us, really yelling the most explicitly racist things directly to Rashida. They were crowded on this, uh, on, on this path walk on the path walking into the detention facility and i just i think of that image all the time because it she wasn't doing it just for her she was blazing a trail to bring our whole country forward into the future and each and every one of us is doing that in some way and so know that know that you are not crazy that this is an environment that is hostile, connect yourself to your core, to your humanity, to your spirituality, use that as your sense of strength, and don't let other people's dehumanization cause you to turn off and disconnect and perpetuate that dehumanization. And also, I just I have to say this, as, as marginalized and oppressed folks, we get so much instruction about what to arm ourselves with. We've gotten that from our family, uh, from society. But, you know, please inform joy in your life as well. That is also an act of resistance. When this culture and this government is coming for everything, our very autonomy over our body, attacking our civil rights, our humanity, our democracy, our planet, do not allow them to steal your joy too. So continue to inform joy in your life. That's just as important. And if I can just add, you know, I mean, fear and hate destroy, right? They poison the body, they poison your spirit, they poison your mind. It is designed literally to stop you from functioning. And what I do is that I use love to fuel myself and to fuel the work, right? I, I love the people I serve. I wake up every morning having love for my children and the children that they will someday have that will not inherit the America I currently live in, but will have a better America because I continue to fight, right? So just reminding yourself every single day what your presence presents to people and the love that you're showing through that. Um, is is a very helpful thing. And one one last thing I wanted to say too is know whose approval is important to you. It is really important that you have that super clear in your mind because when I go to work, I know who I care about, I know whose opinions I care about, and I know whose opinions I don't care about. And you need to know that going in because uh, frankly, a lot, because there are some people that will criticize or engage in good faith out of love for community. Those people, I will listen to that. Absolutely, I'll listen to that. But people, you know, I am not concerned about what the president thinks about me. That does not take up real estate in my mind. 
It does not take emotional weight. And it's very important for you to discern, you know, I care about what my family thinks. I care about my friends. I care about my community. I care about a sisterhood. I care about, you know, the movement. But you need to discern because when you start caring about people and what they think when they do not pay mind to your well-being, that is going to add a weight. So know whose approval you need and care about because you don't need everybody to like you. I can, can, can I just add to that? A lot of people might, might not have family that approve. A lot of people might not have community that approve. A lot of people might not have friends that understand, right, what, what the work looks like. So I will say center yourself and recognize that you are the only person that gives yourself permission. That's true. Right? An invitation to do whatever the hell you want to do. And so... I just, I just want to recognize for you to, to, to be vulnerable like this and coming forward with yeah. this because I know there's so many, especially women in this room that feel the same way. Um, and, you know, Ayana always says, don't let anybody take your joy away from you, sis. And she constantly reminds me of that. Um, but sometimes you just got to, sometimes I use humor, but it can be inappropriate sometimes. It's okay. But I think next surgery, you walk in like, boo. Yeah, I'm here. Like, just just go like, boo. And they're like, what? No, I'm serious. She should just walk in there like, yo, yes, I'm here. And they'll be like, why is she saying that? Just, I, I sometimes do that. Sometimes I'm like straight up saying, it's because it's I'm Palestinian that you're asking me that question, right? Like, sometimes I feel like, yeah, it's passive aggressiveness, but at the same time, I am trying to like not let them take my joy away um, because I'm like, you know, I don't need their approval, but boy, I'm not going to sometimes be silent either. Uh, and sometimes I got to use humor to show just how idiotic they are, you know? So, um, yeah, maybe just even if you got to whisper, these like, boo, you know, I don't care. Just like, yeah, I'm here. I'm about to have, sur I'm about to do this surgery and move away. Like, let me get this done. Let me, see, let me help this person. Yeah. <laughs> Well, first of all, I just want to tell you all that this panel was booked selfishly um, because I was like, I need to sit with them. Um, the 2016 election for me was a game changer, and I don't think in a good way. And then 2018 came around and the squad was born in lots of ways, outside and inside, getting sworn into Congress. And I just want you all to know how much your presence has meant to me. Um, I have named myself an honorary member today. Um, <laughs> but I'll get, I get a t-shirt. Oh, yeah, I, I get a t-shirt. But I really want you all to know that your courage and a bracelet, your courage matters not just to me, but to so many of us, to so many folks out there who are related to folks not in D.C. this week who felt voiceless, who felt like they didn't count, who felt like they weren't seen or heard. I will tell you all, thank you for all you do. Keep stepping. Don't worry about any opinions at all. Who are my children of the light? Striving to do right, my people are warriors. All we know is the fight, praying to seek God and everything I like, yeah. Who are my children of the light? Striving to do right, my people are warriors. All we know is the fight, praying to seek God and everything I like, me the yellow sider. I say I'm just my father's daughter, like Christ, my body beating, but I refuse to holler. Won't give them the satisfaction, but I let the tears flow. Steady praying for a father, forgive them, they don't know that the revolution will not be televised. Twitter, Facebook, excuse me as I scrutinize. Out of the mouth of this babe comes perfected praise. As if you needed a sign, we in the last days. And so the revolution starts with a stroke of the pen.